Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Philadelphia Nativist Riots, Kenneth Milano. Kenneth Milano, author of The Philadelphia Nativist Riots. The subtitle here is Irish Kensington Erupts. Can you set the stage for us? When is it and where is Kensington? Well, the, the riots took place in May of 1844, May 6th, 7th, and 8th to be exact. And it took place in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia today. At that time, Kensington was a self-governing district within the county of Philadelphia. It's uh, northeast of uh, the downtown area of Philadelphia. Who was rioting against who? Uh, it was your uh, stereotypical type Irish versus Protestant battle. Uh, a lot of people believe that they brought it over from Northern Ireland. This, the troubles in Northern Ireland uh, were transplanted into, into Kensington. Uh, the, the area in Kensington was uh, West Kensington, which was an Irish community founded around St. Michael's Parish. And there were Protestants in the neighborhood. It wasn't totally Irish. It was probably about 60% Irish, though, or something thereabouts. And the Protestants uh, wanted to, uh, well, the, the major beef they had was uh, what Bible to read in the schools. At that time, the King James Bible had been uh, passed by law in Harrisburg uh, to be the uh, required reading material. So the day would start with the reading of the Bible, and throughout the day, they might refer to the Bible. And the Catholics, uh, previous to this time, this is before the potato famine, before the mass Irish immigration of the potato famine, which starts the following year in 1845, continues the rest of that decade. But there wasn't really a sizable population of Irish in America. You had a colony, uh, Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony, and you had pockets of Irish Catholics elsewhere. So when you started to get a, a sizable population in, in the West Kensington area, they started arguing to read their own Bible in, 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 in the school. And they decided to, uh, to uh, be heard. <laughs> why would Irish have wanted to leave Ireland at that time before the potato famine, and why would they have chosen Philadelphia? Uh, in the uh, late, ninth, eight, late 18th century, you had uh, the failed United Irishman Rebellion. This was a, uh, 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 an attempt by the uh, Irish Protestants who, while maybe more privileged than the Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland, still had to, had to adhere to the, the crown of England. So they wanted the, the Catholics and the Irish to unite against the English. And before they were really ready to have their uh, rebellion, uh, it was found out and it was sort of premature rebellion and, and it failed miserably. And, the leaders were executed and people were sent to, uh, you know, faraway places like uh, Australia or something, you know. And, uh, and a lot of people immigrated. A lot of the leaders immigrated. A lot of the men involved immigrated. Uh, the leaders tended to be Protestant and, and, and the 
foot soldiers were Catholics, and, and a lot of them left and, and came to Philadelphia. What was so, the attraction in Philadelphia? Uh, well, I mean, Philadelphia had a reputation of being friendly, you know, the whole experiment and religious uh, toleration and things of that nature. But uh, the, the, the leaders uh, of this group came here, uh, started up newspapers and stuff like that. So it was, uh, you know, I guess uh, accessible for them in that respect. Uh, they, uh, they could come here and uh, work and stuff. Could they, they could get jobs? Uh, well, in Kensington, the Irish tended to be uh, the more skilled laborer. There was about five different Irish communities at that time in the Philadelphia County, and the Kensington were considered the, the highest skilled ones. They were textile workers, so they were hand loom weavers. They would work at home piecemeal and, and then deliver the goods and get paid. And what language did they speak? What language did they speak? Well, they spoke English. Uh, I imagine they spoke Gaelic as well. But they could they, speak good English? Yeah, yeah. Were they accepted by the Philadelphians? Not so much. I mean, in, in, the, in the book, uh, in the early chapter, uh, Elizabeth Drinker, an old Quaker family, wrote a diary, and on St. Paddy's Day, 1798, the year of the, the United uh, Irishman Rebellion, she makes a, a note that the, uh, the, the, the boys are up to it again, carrying around the patties. And what's that uh, reference to, is to is that on St. Paddy's Day, Irish Protestants and some American-born Protestants would make up little effigies of Irishmen and sticking bottles of liquor in their hand and, and, and uh, shamrocks or crucifixes on them and then stringing them up on a lamppost in Irish neighborhoods at, uh, before, the, you know, the Irish would wake up on St. Paddy's Day, and that's that's kind of what they thought of the Irish. You know, I, you asked me why the Irish came to Philadelphia. I'm not sure when, when that kind of stuff was going on, but I guess they had to go somewhere, and, and Philadelphia is one place. I mean, New York absorbed Irish, Boston absorbed Irish, Baltimore, all the big cities on the eastern coast absorbed the Irish. Yeah, the same type of problems in each of those cities? I would think so, yeah. I mean, you, you've seen the movie Gangs of New York. That easily could have been the gangs of Philadelphia. I mean, it was, uh, in fact, I, I, I never talked to the writers of that movie, but I imagine they borrowed some from the, uh, the nativist riots of Philadelphia. In New York, exactly, was a, a little bit calm. The, the bishop uh, of New York, the Catholic bishop of New York, uh, he sort of let the Protestants know that they would not tolerate that. <laughs> he was a little bit more militant than the fellow in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, he tried to be a little more calm and, and, and thought he could get some respect that way and, and petitioned the, the Board of Education about the Bible issue and stuff like that. And Can you describe Kensington in the 1840s? How, how big was it? And, uh, Population, uh, ethnic okay. breakdown, where people worked. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, it sits about a couple miles outside of Center City on the Delaware River. And uh, you have Center City, and then the next neighborhood up is uh, Northern Liberties, and then the next neighborhood up is Kensington. The, the old part of Kensington would have been east of Frankfurt Avenue. And this was your, your Scots-Irish, your Welsh, Scots, or English neighborhood, and German, and uh, a lot of Germans. And it was founded around the shipbuilding and fishing trades. And then West Kensington developed a little bit later. Uh, East Kensington developed in the 1730s is when it was founded. So it had a, you know, almost a 100-year period before the riots broke out. And it was always considered staunchly American. I mean, they, they fought, and a lot of the men fought in the Revolution. 
They protest the Jay's Treaty, burning John Jay in effigy, and, and, and uh, they were big, big patriots. And a lot of these nativists who fought the Irish Catholics were, were, were like sons of uh, revolutionary guys and stuff like that, uh, sons of the spirit of 76. And so in the East Kensington, you had the shipbuilding and the fishermen. The German tended to be the fishermen. The English, Scots, Irish, Welsh were your shipbuilders. And Kensington was a, a powerhouse in the shipbuilding world. It was, uh, it was big in America. I just want to back up a second. Was there a fishing industry on the Delaware River? Right. And that's where we get the fish town name today. East Kensington, when, when Kensington became self-governing, it, uh, it, it came under the township of the Northern Liberties. But then when they broke away from, uh, when they broke away, when it decided to become self-governing, Petition Harrisburg was granted the right to be self-governing. So they divided it up into East Kensington and West Kensington, with Frankfurt Avenue being the divider. Over time, the name East Kensington went away and became Fishtown. West Kensington became known as Kensington, and it migrated and expanded northward to the K&A area today, which was a lot of people think of the heart of Kensington. But this fishing uh, community started in the 1730s. Anthony Palmer, the fellow that laid out the town of Kensington, modeled after the uh, uh, the British town or the British palace, Kensington, that was the, the residence of the monarch at that time. So he named all the streets after the monarch. You had uh, King Street, Queen Street, Prince Street, Duke Street, titles of the monarch. After the revolution, they became Beach Street, Richmond Street, uh, Gerard, uh, Prince, uh, Gerard became uh, Gerard Avenue, and then Duke became Thompson Street. So that all got washed away after the revolution. But the Germans were your fishermen, and at that time you could pay your taxes. In colonial times, you could pay your taxes and fish. It was an easy profession to get into. Sewed up some nets. The river, they said, you could walk to New Jersey on the back of the shad, and they would fish, and they'd have millions of pound catches every year. The last million pound catch was about the turn of the century, 1903 or somewhere around there. And by then it was being overpopulated, uh, overfished and polluted. So for over 100 years, 150 years, you had a fishing industry there. This is not directly related to the book about the, uh, the nativist riots, but you also wrote a book, The Hidden History of Kensington and Fishtown. Mm -hmm. And in it, <clears throat> you say, the first successful launching of a steamboat, John Fitch's perseverance took place in, 18, in 1786, years before the more popularly known launch of Robert Fulton's Clermont. Mm -hmm. Fitch's experiment took place at a shipyard in Kensington's Point Pleasant, the first steamboat. Yeah, yeah. That, that area where the Sugar House Casino sits today, we did a lot of research when, uh, when they were doing the archaeological research for, uh, to build that. They had to do an archaeological dig by, because of the preservation law. And uh, we did a lot of research on that site and discovered lots of things. And uh, this we knew about, but we, we looked at it more closely. And that, that whole uh, area where the casino is today was sort of like an incubator for the early steamboat guys or the local early steam locomotive guys. Uh, also in that book, yeah, there's an article about the, uh, the Johnson brothers, English immigrants, who did early locomotives in like the 1820s out of that place and ran it into a house in Northern Liberties. <laughs> well, yeah, you also run about uh, in uh, 1879, I think. Oh, no, uh, uh, 1828 and 1827, a steam carriage yeah. built by Nicholas and James Johnson in Kennedy <laughs> that was run on the street, so it was steam-driven and yeah. rolled down the streets. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was quite an a, a, quite a, a interesting place. And Harrison, a, a great locomotive builder who, who went to Russia, 
and built the uh, railroads for the Russians, the Tsar. He started down there. Uh, so you had fellas coming there and apprenticing under these guys, then going out and doing great things. And, uh, so I, I like to think it was an incubator for the American Revolution, uh, American industrialization. Well, when the Irish came to America, what were the immigration laws? Could they just freely immigrate? Uh, yeah, you could immigrate, and you had to be a, a citizen. Uh, you had to be a resident for five years before you could uh, become a citizen. Uh, generally, you had to be in America, say, two years before you could apply for citizenship, and then wait, maybe wait another three years to become a citizen. And that was one of the, the sticking points with the nativists, which the uh, nativists being, uh, sometimes people think native. Native Americans? You mean the Indians? Well, no, it's native-born Americans, whites, uh, white Americans who were born in America. And they felt that the immigrants were coming and becoming citizens rather quickly and getting involved in the American political process. But they really felt that they were backwards. They were like, you know, backcountry people, the Irish Catholics. They were poor, uneducated. How could they possibly be uh, knowledgeable enough to be involved in this, uh, you know, American democracy experiment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted to change the immigration laws. That was one of the major points of the nativist political party, the American Republican Party it was called, uh, of their platform, was to change the immigration law that any immigrant had to wait 21 years. At that time, you had to be 21 years old to vote. So they thought an immigrant should wait 21 years to be able to vote. So you could be 40 when you immigrated, and you had to wait till you were 61 before you could vote. And then they also didn't want any immigrant to hold any political office, no matter what level of, of society, uh, from the local to the president. You know. Was that the, the nativists, the people who founded the, the Know Nothing Party? Right. The, the nativists evolved into the Know Nothings. The know Nothings was, was, was more like in the 1850s. It became more or later in 1840s. And nominated uh, Millard Fillmore for president. Yeah. Same, same yeah. group of people. But yeah, by the mid-1850s, they sort of died out. And then the, the, uh, the abolitionist faction of the know-nothings or nativists, they joined up with the Republicans. And then I guess other factions joined up with the Democrats or whatnot. But you say in your book that the native, nativists or native party, whatever they called themselves, Na was successful in getting candidates elected in Philadelphia and New York? Very successful. I mean, particularly after the riots. After the riots, they, they, they took the whole slate in Kensington and elected six commissioners that were, uh, you know, Kensington was self-governing. It had a board of commissioners, and then the president of that board would be the, the sort of the mayor of Kensington. And, and they had six vacancies, and six nativists filled it up. They took uh, most of the municipal elections in New York and Philadelphia. They became a, a sort of a national party overnight, had a convention, and uh, elected several congressmen, one of them who was very active in the riots. Let's go. Louis, Louis Charles Levin. Levin. Yeah, tell me about him. He sounds like an interesting He's character. a very interesting character. <clears throat> in the book, I try to highlight some personalities rather than just a blow-by-blow blow of, of the three days of fighting, which is plenty of blow-by-blow blow there. But uh, Levin was interesting. He was actually Jewish from South Carolina, and at some point in his life converted to Christianity. Uh, he was a, an attorney, uh, he, he was a teacher, uh, a, a great public speaker. He was a very famous uh, orator, got involved in the temperance movement. Wounded in a duel, his second in the duel was said to have been Jefferson Davis. That's what they say. I mean, I, I didn't, never found proof for that, but that's the story. Uh, and then I guess after that duel, he sort of came north and got involved in the temperance movement in Philadelphia and uh, started, you know, preaching, you know, anti-alcohol. 
and they got involved in the Nativist Party. The Nativist Party was founded in New York, but it had actually, there was a, a party that was started in Germantown in earlier, uh, maybe 1837. And the Panic of uh, 37 was a, a bad economic time, and uh, this party sort of sprung up, an anti-immigrant type party, sprung up in Germantown, but it quickly died out. It wasn't, I guess, very fashionable yet. And that panic, that bad economic depression, lingered, you know, and into the 1840s. So that was another issue, you know. The, the immigrant is always willing to work a little cheaper. You had the, the Catholic angle, you had the voting angle, and all these things sort of culminated into, into like feeding into the Natives Party platform and, and making them a, a, a success. You say. Uh Levitt's popularity among the ignorant class helped propel him as he was elected to Congress. The ignorant class. Well, ignorant in the sense that uh, they, they were bigots, uh, anti-Catholics, you know, simply because they were Catholics, not because they did anything. I mean, they really felt that the Catholics in, in America was going to destroy American democracy, that the Pope somehow was reaching his long arm over into the American Constitution and trying to fiddle with it. Well, you, you quote um, Reverend Lyman Beecher, the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, yeah. uh, considered an enlightened minister given his relationship with Harriet Beecher Stowe, argued that Catholic immigration was a danger to American republicanism. Another well-known personality who sided with the natives was Samuel F. B. Morse, inventor of the Morse Code. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, you wouldn't think those fellows ignorant. They're very much enlightened, but somewhere, you know, the, there's a certain... Uh, the thing about them that, uh, that uh, prejudiced them against the Catholics. You um, write about two... Full disclosure, I'm a practicing Catholic. <laughs> so, okay. But not Irish? No. Well, my grand I have one grandmom who was Irish, actually. Marcella Coughlin, my dad's mom, St. Louis. Potato famine Irish came over. Um, you said uh, you write about two other riots that took place before the 1840, 1844 mm -hmm. riots, the, the Railroad Riot and the Weavers Riot. Right. There were several riots. Uh, I only listed three of them that actually took place in Kensington, but Philadelphia w w was populated by many riots in the 1820s and 1840s. There was several few riots against blacks. There was uh, uh, riots continually about labor strife. And uh, the ones I mentioned were weavers' riots, where some weavers were, were willing to work under the pay grade, and and the uh, the fellas, uh, you know, took it out on them, you know, drug them out of their homes, beat them simple, uh, destroyed their uh, loom, things like that. And and and, and the uh, the railroad riots is interesting. They the railroad wanted to run a line to connect the from their place at Third and Willow up north, and they wanted to run that line right down Front Street which is right through West Kensington. And they would come and lay their tracks, and then at night the people would rip them up. <laughs> and they would lay them and they would rip them up. And then sometimes they would just pelt them with stones, and a posse was called out, and they chased the posse away, and they burnt down the tavern where the posse was meeting. And it got kind of nasty. It was off and on for a couple of years, and uh, even Edgar Allan Poe wrote about it in the Graham magazine. And uh, it was quite a funny little story he wrote, talking about even the damsels were you know, fighting and stuff like that. Did they end up building the railroad? No. But later on, they did build the L. <laughs> the Market Frankfurt elevated. Yeah. So uh, 1844, uh, the, the subject of your book, what 
what was set the stage for the riot? Well, they had the uh, the uh, Bible issue in the school, and they uh, they decided to come up with a compromise while it was being settled in Harrisburg or with the board that uh, they would allow the Catholic kids to leave the room when they started to read the Bible. Now, the Dewey Bible, Dewey Reams Bible, the Catholic Bible, has notes and commentary to guide the reader, so to speak. The Protestants didn't want that in the school because they felt that would prejudice maybe a Protestant kid who might see it, you know, guide him to read it in a Catholic way or something like that. And so they decided, and like I said, the, the, the King James Bible, the Protestant Bible, was the required textbook for public schools. I mean, it's hard to imagine today where you, know, you can't even say the word Bible barely in, in, a, in a public school, but here they were arguing which Bible to read. So, so the kids would either leave or not participate. And this upset the Protestants because they felt it was a disruption in the classroom and things of that nature. And, uh, and the councilman Clark, Hugh Clark, he was an Irish Catholic, probably the wealthiest man in Kensington, West Kensington, uh, on the board of directors of the school board, and as well as an alderman in the neighborhood and a police magistrate. So he was a big, powerful fellow in the neighborhood. He went and had it out with the teacher and, and said, ultimately, it's going to be your choice to let them read it or not. He said, I recommend don't let them read it until the brouhaha is over. So the Protestants got wind of this, and there was one particular fella uh, they, they, whose name escapes me, but he was sort of a, a evan very evangelical type guy and, and Presbyterian, I believe. And, and he... Uh, thought, oh, the Clark is throwing the Bible out of the school. He's, he's trying to take the Bible out of the school. So they had a mass rally in Kensington at the, what was then would have been like City Hall for Kensington at Frankfurt and Master, Commissioner's Hall. This was in March of 1844, three, a couple months before the riots. And they decided that all these, you know, all this platform and issues that they would have and, and, and have it out. So at that time, the Nativist Party was getting rolling and and the American Protestant Association was also formed. It was a, a group uh, of about 100 Protestant ministers, you know, various denominations, probably 25% of them Presbyterian. They seemed to be the spearheaders of this group. So more or less every Sunday from the pulpit, they are land blasting the Catholics. And then the Nativist Party from the, the you know, from their soapbox or, or land blasting the Irish Catholics. So this tension is rising and you got the Bible thing, the voting thing, elections are coming up. The nativists would never have a meeting in West Kensington, the Third Ward, because the Irish Catholics told them, if you have a meeting here, we will burn that building down. We will not leave one stern standing. So anytime the nativists of the Third Ward wanted to have speakers to come out and speak to them, they'd have to go across Frankfurt Avenue to the Second Ward. Kensington and have it there. So they couldn't get some of the more popular people like Louis Levin to come to the meeting because he said, I'm not going to speak to the third ward in the second ward. If I'm going to speak to the third ward, I want to speak to them in the third ward. So since nobody would give their house up for fear of being burned down, they decided to meet at an empty lot at Second and Master, right down the street from St. Michael's Church, the Catholic Church, which is the whole communion, uh, the Irish community is founded around St. Michael's Church and 1831 or so, and they, uh, they had their meeting on, on May 3rd, a Friday afternoon, and uh, the Irish disrupted it and chased them away. Nobody really got hurt. Maybe some people got hit with a rock or something, and uh, they de determined to have that meeting. So they came back the next Monday morning, 
Monday afternoon uh, after some planning over the weekend, and, and you would have thought cooler heads prevailed after a weekend of rest. But uh, Monday they came for their meeting, and that's when all all heck broke loose. <laughs> How many Irish were in Philadelphia at the time? Uh, there were tens of thousands. I don't in have Kensington? A, uh, in Kensington. I would have to say several few thousand. Was it a, was it a significant percentage of the, the neighborhood? Yeah, in, in West Kensington, yes. Uh, West Kensington being uh, west of Frankfurt Avenue, it was at least sixty percent or so. Were there Catholic schools? Not at this time. You might have had little private things going on. I mean, the the St. Michael's uh, nunnery uh, was run by the Sisters of Charity who had moved to Iowa, they were running a little seminary there. Uh, but it wasn't a, like a parochial school system. So the Catholics really didn't have a choice to go. And you mentioned there was one, one uh, Irishman who was wealthy. Were there, were there rich and poor Irish, successful? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kensington was, West Kensington was a textile uh, paradise. I mean, you had lots of English or Scots-Irish were textile mill owners. But then you had Irish Catholics who also uh, owned mills. So it was not a necessarily a wealth thing. I mean, the, the rich Irish didn't necessarily get along with the rich Protestants. Well, uh, the, the the neighborhood guys wanted to uh, string up Councilman Clark. Also, <laughs> oh. I mean, he was one of them. He was one of their leaders, you know. And uh, and some of the uh, you know, Clark was a, a regular guy though. He was like about law and order and all. He wasn't a ruffian. And uh, so when they were having these battles. Uh, uh, I mean, just a year prior to the riots in 43, there was a Weaver's riot right in the exact spot where the riots of 44 took place. And at that time, Clark was the police magistrate, so he has to, you know, bust heads and lock people up. <laughs> of, of Irish people? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what kind of police force did they have at the time? They had none. <laughs> you had a constable. Every ward would have a constable. And then he had the ability to raise a posse. So maybe he had a list of men he could call out. After the riots, they decided to form a police force, and they uh, had, I think, five police officers for every ward, and at that time, there might have been eight wards or seven wards, so then you had a, a sizable amount of men that you could rely on. But one of the <clears throat> reasons of the, uh, which made it problematic was because Kensington was self-governing, you could run you know, across the, the Cahoxon Creek, which sat below Gerard Ave, across the bridge, and being in Northern Liberties, and the Kensington policemen can't do anything unless the Northern Liberties guys, I guess, were willing to hand you over. So how did the fighting start? Who threw the first punch? Louis Levin was up on the podium giving a speech. And uh, actually right before him, Peter Sken Smith was giving a speech. Peter Sken Smith is another interesting character. He was... Uh, the son of a, a partner of Jacob Astor, the very wealthy, uh, the fur trader guys who made Buco Bunny. And Peter Ken Smith went to Florida and became an early investor in St. Augustine, one of the biggest property owners down there. And then he went bust during the Panic of 1837 as well. And he wound up coming up to Philadelphia and was interested in temperance and nativism and stuff like that. And, and like Louis Levin, Peter Ken Smith died, uh, he went insane. They both went insane eventually. And, the funny thing about Levin is his wife converted to Catholicism. His daughter married like someone from the Spanish delegation. So, so that's kind of odd. So an interesting family. So Levin uh, Smith was up there, and, and a guy, John O'Neill, came with his cart 
and dumped a big load of dirt, right? And he made his way through the crowd with the horse chasing people out of the way. He dumped a big load of dirt in front of the uh, uh, podium, the uh, stage. And uh, he's like, ah, oh, I was paid to do this, you know? This, somebody wants to improve this land. The owner wants to improve the land. Because it wasn't public property, it was a private lot. So I guess the guy who owned it maybe was an Irish Catholic and they figured this was something to do. And they started you know, harassing each other, yelling about, and they, they offered the Irish to come up to the podium and speak about these immigration issues and stuff like this. And nobody took them up on it. And so they were yelling back and forth. And then a big rainstorm came, a rain cloud. And it started raining like mad. And everybody ran about a block away, not even, to uh, the nanny goat market, which was like the farmer's market. The one end was an open space. The other end had stalls where people would sell their goods. And the, uh, the Irish, had, were, some of the guys were already in there. So when all the nativists started to enter the, the, the market house, which is like a long pavilion, a block-long pavilion, similar to the, uh, the market house in the Head House Square downtown on 2nd Street. And they, uh, so they, uh, they had this, uh, they tried to reconvene your meeting. And Levin tried to speak again. And people were yelling and screaming, and, 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 and somebody was going to hit him if he got up there. And someone said, who are you? You're not going to hit anybody. And so, like, you know, ruffians started to tangle. And, and then one, you know, brave guy, you know, pulled his guns and said, I'll shoot the first man that touches him. And then, of course, there's always another braver guy. So a guy steps up, you're not going to shoot anybody. And he got shot in the face. <laughs> and then that started a big Right. I mean, people just started fighting. They said two men started fighting. One had a club, one had a brick. They were banging each other. You know, any one blow would have killed a, a normal person. And but these guys were able to battle it out for a while. And you know, groups of men ran out the, the market house uh, with the nativists chasing them. And as they were running, other uh, Irish were, were sort of hiding around the corner. They sort of drew them into that and they opened up fire on them, and uh, it just became a major battle for about an hour. That's How big an area did it encompass? Uh, well, the battleground was kind of like on America, today's American Street and Master Street. So it was like a, a major intersection. American Street's very large, like a very wide street like a, at, that, at that point. And uh, I guess it could be like a two-block by three-block battleground over the course of three days. How many people... Fighting. Uh, you had thousands of people, but real combatants actually with guns were probably about 60 to 75 on each side. And then the rest of the people were the mob. And the mob was, were good for like throwing rocks and you know, beating people up, not, uh, not, uh, but from afar. You know? <laughs> How'd you find information on this? Uh, well, I used the uh, papers, newspapers, contemporary newspapers of the day. I, I read the uh, uh, newspapers for that entire year of 1844 and uh, a couple months of 1845, 1843. Uh, were there any objective reports or was it the Irish newspaper and the nativist newspaper? Well, there were, right. We, we like to think today, you know, like the, the papers are supposed to be neutral. and Fox News is conservative and this one, MSNBC is liberal. That's very normal. I mean, I think that idea is rather recent <laughs> that the paper was supposed to be neutral. The nativists had several publications which reported on the riots, very slanted to the nativists. The Catholic Herald reported on the riots, very slanted towards the Catholics. 
I suppose the public ledger was sort of neutral in the sense that it seemed to be most accurate and not overly, you know, one way or the other. I read most of the public ledger. But it's also good to get those other papers and balance them all out. And then I also used the, uh, the uh, well, the court testimonies don't exist anymore, but uh, there were 150 witnesses or a lot of witnesses. And a lot of the testimonies were recorded, which seems like word for word, in the newspapers, in the public ledger, in different papers. So they were very helpful. And even those vary widely, so you have to balance them out also. Were there but, but court records, testimonies, newspapers was, were my main source. And then there were a couple of books written by fellows that were in the riots, uh, contemporaries of the riots. Conflicting reports? Uh, no, they were nativists. They wrote that. They pretty much agreed. <laughs> yeah. So did, did the battle end at nightfall? Uh, no. That, it, that first battle lasted about an hour. The men, uh, the nativists, uh, had two guys killed. One was mortally wounded immediately, George Schiffler. He becomes the hero poster child. Uh, he's the martyr. He's the first nativist to be killed in a nativist movement in America. In, in, you know, by an Irish Catholic, and he was only a young kid, a teenager, 18, 19, something like this. And so they, they held him up as a martyr. You and say it has been romanticized that Schiffler was clutching the American flag, keeping it from touching the ground and defending it from supposed Irish Catholic mob intent on destroying it. Right, that's the way it was portrayed. And, and the flag was torn and dirty, but in the court testimony it came out that that flag was drugged through the mud during the rainstorm. You know, and, and like, yeah, maybe he had it, you know, but uh, the, the flag actually was, and one thing said that the flag was stuck up at the, uh, at the uh, Nanny Goat Market, at the market house, and it was perched there. So how he was clutching it when he got shot, which was a block away, is a little bit confusing. But, you know, it's part of the mythology of the nativist movement, and posters and, and broadsides and poetry, and music scores, and color prints were made. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, there's a lot of ephemera around George Schiffler. Well, why didn't the first day just end it? Well, the nativists weren't satisfied. They, they, they went back and they regrouped after this first hour battle and they came back at night and they marched up uh, 2nd Street. And as they got above Girard Avenue in the Kensington, stones rained down upon them from the Irish Catholics on the tops of the houses. Uh, and. Uh, and people put American flags in their window if they were Protestant to keep the nativists from breaking their windows and destroying their houses. So eventually the mob was driven back, uh, but then the Irish, I guess, sort of left out the back door. And then a lot of those houses along 2nd Street were destroyed by stoning and uh, rocking them you know, out. And then they made their way up to 2nd and Thompson, it's Phoenix Street then, and they decided they were going to burn down the nunnery, the convent. Uh, there was a, a one uh, woman in there with two young girls, and uh, she answered the door thinking no mob would hit a woman. Well, she was wrong. She got stoned and knocked out. They hit her right in the forehead with a, with a brick and knocked her out, and they began to light the, the fence around the nunnery on fire. But just as they started that, the Irish were on the rooftops across the street and, and, and a little ways away, and they just rained down a volley of gunshot on the mob and they killed two other, two more nativists were shot and killed, and many were wounded. In the, the previous episode, earlier in the day, I must have had a dozen or so wounded, and two died. 
Schiffler and another fellow later on died. In the evening, two more people were killed and, and many were wounded. And in the crowd was uh, Cadwalder, Colonel Cadwalder, General Cadwalder, and the sheriff, uh, McMichael. And they had come up to see if it warranted, see if this disturbance warranted calling out the militia. And after seeing this gunshot raining down on the mob, they decided, okay, let's call out the militia. The sheriff didn't want to call out the posse because they were outgunned and outmanned. So it made no sense to call out the posse. And you say the, the militia had sometime before resolved not to perform duties in cases of riots unless the legislature made an appropriation for their pay right. during the time they were so engaged, which had not been done, so they were not willing to enter duty. So yeah. no pay, no play. Exactly. Like they would call out the men and then the they get, I mean, they're risking their lives and they're not going to pay them. So that was a, and then there was also a, an issue of did the militia have a right to shoot citizens if the citizens were not uh, harming the militia. So if I'm burning down a house, can the militia shoot me or not? So that was like a question that was up in the air. Now I think today, you know, if there's a riot, you can shoot people, you know, uh, regardless of what they're doing. You pointed out that General Cadwalder was um, trying to bring order on Cadwalder Street. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that the main rioting took place on a street that was uh, named to honor his family. <laughs> you know, Cadwalder being an old family going back to William Penn's days. I want to ask you about another character in your book, Colonel Peter Albright. Colonel Albright was a, a guy who tried to portray himself as neutral, but he was obviously an an, rabid anti-Catholic uh, nativist. But born Catholic. Born Catholic, uh, baptized. His father was Catholic, his mother Protestant but he was baptized at St. Augustine's, and uh, it was his goal to make sure St. Augustine's burnt so that baptism register would also be burnt that proved that he had been baptized a Catholic. Uh, but unfortunately for him, St. Augustine, well, unfortunately St. Augustine's was burned, but fortunately uh, they put the baptism register in a furnace uh, and saved it. And it was May, so they weren't using the furnace. Did these riots spread to other neighborhoods in the city? Uh, they did, they did. Uh, after that, well, what I had mentioned earlier, the, the nunnery shooting and the previous shooting, that was, only, that was the end of the first day of rioting. It took two more days before the rioting in Kennington was over. Uh, several dozen killed, dozens of people wounded, 60 structures destroyed, churches, a church burnt, a rectory burnt, a convent burnt, the market house burnt, the volunteer fire company burnt. And after they pretty much destroyed the... Uh, the main buildings of the Catholic neighborhood in West Kensington. The mob marched uh, south on 4th Street. Uh, they went by St. Peter's over to 5th and Gerard, which at that time was being built. And that was a German Catholic group. And they were armed, and, and uh, some say with pitchforks. <laughs> so I guess the, there wasn't much uh, you know, willingness to fight with Germans, and maybe particularly if they were armed. So, so they continued downtown on 4th Street. And they got down to St. Augustine's Church down around uh, New Street, which is right around Vine Street, just inside the city border at that time. And the mayor tried to calm him down. And he got up on a wagon, tried to say, go home, calm him down. And he got stoned, and he had to flee. And they had a militia group there, but it wasn't enough. And they were soon driven off. And they went in, and they burnt St. Augustine's Church and rectory and destroyed one of the best libraries in America. Uh, 
And then they, they wanted to go down and burn down old St. Mary's and old St. Joseph's and, and St. John's over on 13th Street. But the militia at that point started to react and, and protected those churches. Did the Irish retaliate? Uh, well, they retaliated in the sense that they battled them for three days in Kensington. But in, on the second day of Kensington, the, uh, it, it being their neighborhood and their homes, the Irish were, 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 were fortified and protected. The nativists were more in the open, so the nativists got slaughtered the first couple for the first day and a half. They came up on the second day, tried to attack the Hibernia Hose Company, which is where a lot of gunfire had come from on that initial day of rioting, and uh, and they uh, couldn't break down the door. Eventually, they got in and was able to take out the carriage and destroy the hose carriage, which in in firemen's history, that's like a mortal sin to destroy their hose carriage. And uh, so gunfire rained down on them. And uh, one Albright got shot in the hand. He was leading a group of men. And uh, I want to get back to Albright. He's an interesting character. And uh, that second day, the natives, a lot more wounded and, and killed. And, and But then they started, got smart and started to burn, or smart. They got really dangerous and, and burned down the buildings. They started firing the buildings. And once they fired the buildings, that forced the Catholics out into the open. And, and, and then they were outgunned, and, and, and then they had to flee. So by the end of the second day of rioting, most Catholics had fleed the neighborhood up to, uh, many went up to what they call Camax Woods, which is roughly up on Temple's campus, and, and camped out there and, and just got away from the neighborhood. Some of them went out in, into other Irish neighborhoods where they had friends or whatnot. People, someone even went up to Norristown, and, and uh, so. And then on the third day of rioting, it was just the natives coming back up and continuing the destruction and burnt down St. Michael's Church and rectory and stuff like that. So, the the rioting ended when the Irish were rousted. Well, the the yes and no. I mean, it ended because the militia finally just started to act. I mean, they, they had burnt down everything that they were willing to burn down. I mean, the houses where the Irish were shooting from, two blocks of houses were burnt down completely. The church, the rectory, the nunnery, uh, the different stores that supplied ammo to the Irish, they were burnt down. The buildings where the Irish were shooting down, protecting the nunnery, those buildings were destroyed. So after they destroyed all the significant buildings, uh, there was nothing else to destroy. And they, uh, they almost had a confrontation with the military. And the military at this point really didn't do anything. They were just standing around. I mean, you say in the book there was some speculation that the militia had uh, sympathies. nativist uh, yeah. sympathies. Yeah, yeah well, at, at that time, you would have had mostly a predominantly Protestant militia. And, you know, most guys that like to do the military thing, I guess they're a little, you know, roughing themselves. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but uh, they didn't do anything. And uh, I found a contemporary letter uh, written at the time of the riots, which, which says that you know that you know these guys were happy about the Irish being burned out. And uh, so I think some of that existed. Yeah. And the uh, so when the militia finally uh, started to act, like once once the rioters went downtown where the patricians of the city lived, then they got a little excited. Now they wanted them to do something, you know. While they were burning down the Catholic neighborhood on the outskirts of the city, it wasn't a big deal. But once they got downtown and burnt down St. Augustine, that was a big deal. Uh, amazingly, the wind was blowing just right, and, and the other houses around it didn't burn. I think one house maybe got a little damaged. 
But, I mean, when they wanted to go down to uh, Walnut and Locust to burn down St. Mary's and St. Joseph's or over the 13th of Market to burn down St. John's, and that's the heart of the city now you're talking about and could cause a big problem. And so that was suppressed, and, and that was the end of the rioting. Were there arrests, trials? Lots of arrests. There was uh, probably about five dozen arrests, uh, maybe more. And uh, I'd say two-thirds were Irish Catholics. Uh, the Did Catholics tended to be sentenced to jail more than the Protestants. I mean, the whole municipal offices are, are all Protestants. I mean, you don't have Catholic judges. I mean, I suppose there might have been one somewhere, but... No, mo mo the police, everybody is Protestant, you know, more or less. So. Can you figure out who started it, who's responsible? Who started it? Well, the nativists argue that they were trying to exercise their, their rights, well, guaranteed to, under the Constitution. Sure they were. I mean, they, they, they wanted to exercise the right of freedom of assembly. They have that right. They wanted to exercise their right of freedom of speech. They have that right. But where they wanted to assemble and, and what they wanted to speak was it very antagonistic to the Catholics? I would say it was similar to like the Ku Klux Klan wanting to have a rally and a speech in you know the most densely populated uh, African American community. Sure, they have a right to do that, but is it wise? No, <laughs> it's going to be a problem, and, and that's what happened. And the Irish let them have it. <laughs> did, did the Irish? come back to Kensington? Uh, they did. They did. They rebuilt their community. The neighborhood became very Irish, more so, and uh, St. Michael's is still open today. Uh, the, the, uh, the Irish, uh, they lost that particular fight after you know, they got burned out, but they didn't back down. There was uh, cases where the Irish would attack the Protestants later on that year, and and stuff like that, and then the Protestants would attack them, so they, they, didn't, they weren't afraid or, or, uh, or anything like that. They, they kept that up. But, I mean, some of the issues were resolved. Uh, out of the rise, the parochial school system was born. Uh, Bishop John Newman, now St. John Newman, helped to start the parochial school system. So that ended the Bible question in the school for Catholics. Most Catholics went to Catholic school after that. That was a, a big problem, you know, the religious part. And then as a, uh, I mean, politics-wise, I mean, yeah, the uh, nativists soon went away, you know, uh, you know, joined other parties. Although you, you say that the, the party grew pretty big. As after yeah. the 1844 riots in May and July, the nativist party exploded mm. from mm. a small group of about yeah. 500 before the riots. It grew to have supporters in the tens of thousands. Mm. In the November elections of 1844, the party won three of the four congressional seats for Philadelphia and sent nine men to the state legislature. Yeah. No, they, they were popular, but it didn't last forever, you know, another 10 years and they were gone. So they had to put up with some stuff, I guess. <laughs> Did the Irish eventually outnumber the Protestants in in uh, uh, In Kensington, Kensington yeah, yeah. East Kensington, uh, Fishtown, didn't get its first uh, Catholic church until like 1882 or so. That was a Polish Catholic church. Uh, the first Irish Catholic church in Fishtown was uh, Holy Name, which came around 1905, 1903. So that's a pretty old, long time, you know, to have enough there to, to, to have a, your own church. I mean, there were churches on the outside of Fishtown, but Fishtown was always famous for being staunchly Protestant and, and staunchly American. Uh, they always say that. 
And you live in Kensington today? I, uh, I live on the border. If I walk across the street, I'm in Fishtown. <laughs> what is the neighborhood like? Oh, well, now we are uh, Fishtown with an E on the end. We are uh, a very much a, a gentrifying community. We have lots of new folks, artisans and shopkeepers and artists, and uh, opening up cafes and restaurants and art galleries and houses or real estate is out out of this world. I mean, it's uh, the prices, uh, you know, growing up there, you know, you can buy a house for thirty or $40,000. Now you got to pay $240,000, $340,000. Uh, parking is a big problem and dogs, you know, people, lots of new folks have dogs, so people complain about dogs and the dogs business and stuff like this. And I mean, these, these are the major issues in Fishtown today. It's not, it's not like what Bible we're reading in, in, in the schools anymore or, or who's voting and who's not voting. It's uh, dogs and, and car parking. <laughs> Who are the big employers now? Uh, there's no real big employers. I mean, most of the, the new businesses that are coming are more or less, uh, I guess you could call them mom and pops, you know. They're not really mom and pops yet because they don't have kids, but, you know, eventually they might be mom and pops. They're like small businesses, you know, uh, or self-proprietors, self-ownership type thing. Uh, there's no real major factories anymore. And when you, in your book, A Hidden History of Kensington and Fishtown, you write about some major factories there, like textile mills that look right, huge. Right. Uh, well, one of the factories, uh, uh, the Butterworth factory, which I have an article about there, uh, is now the 2424 East York building, which is a professional office building with lawyers and architects and doctors and artists uh, have offices in. And but in previous years, it was a, a textile machinery manufacturer uh, making machinery for textile businesses all over the country. It had a, a railroad spur specially built to come into their factory so they can put this gigantic textile machinery uh, on the on the train and, and, and put it to market. And you write about a, a, a jar company? Ajax uh, Metal, and I'm sorry, uh, Hero Glassworks. Yeah, there was a fella that uh, came from uh, Corning, New York, down here, started a, a glassworks bottling company, uh, eventually evolved into a galvanizing place. But he made the Hero jar, which uh, rivaled Mason's jar and surpassed Mason's jar. Uh, everybody knows the mason jar, and I think we call any kind of jar we use for canning or whatever, preserving, we call a mason jar, even it isn't a, a real mason jar, but that name is synonymous with that. But uh, this fella, he, he outdid Mason. Mason apparently wrote his patent too loosely, and other folks were able to improve upon it easily, and that's what this guy did. And him and Mason wound up in court for like years fighting each other, but he called it the hero. Glass works, and he had a, a symbol on there for heroes of the Civil War. It was founded after the Civil War. When did Kensington and Fishtown become part of Philadelphia? 1854, the uh, consolidation of the county into the into the city. That was a, sort of a big deal. And the old Kensington Commissioners Hall then became part of the you know property of the city of Philadelphia. And what's and, what's the ethnic makeup now? Today. Uh, Fishtown is predominantly white. Kensington is is a mix. It's white, African American, Spanish. Many Irish still there. Oh yeah, most of the uh, older residents would be Irish, Irish and Polish. Yeah. And what got you interested in doing the history of uh, this area? Well, I was uh, a history major in Temple University, and when I got to my uh, senior uh, seminar. 
I had to uh, place my family in history. He, uh, Professor uh, uh, Alan Davis, he was a social historian, and he wanted us to uh, place our family in history, not just when they were born, when they died, when they married, bare bones, skeleton of a family tree, but why did they leave the country they came from? What, what was conditions? What happened to them in America in the big events like the Civil War, the, or if they were here in the Revolutionary War, the World War, the Great Depression? So in, in researching my family history, I found we came in 1844, the year of the riots, and they were members of St. Peter's. They were Germans. My mother's, fa my mother's uh, family were all Germans. And they, uh, so they were early members of St. Peter's in, in the history of the family. I was sort of doing a history of my uh, community, and uh, I was able to write history papers on anything I wanted to in college, provided it fit into that historical time period. So if I was doing a, a Revolutionary War paper or a uh, Jacksonian America paper, I could write it about Kensington in the Jacksonian era or Kensington during the Revolution. So I started writing all these local history papers and, and uh, sort of grew from there. Are there other aspects of the Kensington history that, that uh, intrigue you to write about? Well, I was always interested in the landed gentry and how those big uh, colonial states broke up and became the modern neighborhoods. That was really my interest. And, and in the process of doing that research, I was fortunate to meet a couple of uh, men, uh, Torben Jenk and Rich Reamer. Rich's family uh, were in America in colonial times and uh, they were involved in the shipbuilding industry in Kensington, ship caulkers, helping to ready the boats for Washington, actually, when he crossed the Delaware. And, and, and uh, Kensington shipwrights were involved with that uh, project. And then Torben Jank is interested in industrial and archaeological history and architecture and things like that. So our three interests sort of overlap and gave a much fuller picture of the community. So the three of us started a, uh, a group called uh, Kensington Histories. And, and we gave talks in the community at different people's houses or interesting buildings, churches or homes or what in the factories. And, and then we published a book with Harry Silcox, who did a lot of work uh, in Philadelphia on the service learning project. Harry was a former principal at Lincoln and wrote several books on Philadelphia history, uh, Distant Soul Works, a History of Tacconi, where he was from, and another book on a South Philadelphia politician, McMullen. So Harry got all three of us together to write a book called Kensington History Stories and Memories, where we wrote the uh, first chapter, introductory chapter, to place the students' uh, oral histories. So students would interview seniors, and, and then we gave the history background to, for the context of those interviews to be in. And, that's, and we had a great time, and we enjoyed it, and we kept going, and it still goes on today. You know, one thing I meant to ask about, <clears throat> you say the, the Irish in Philadelphia tended to be Jeffersonian Republicans. Right. What did that mean? Why, why did they pick that? Uh, well, the Irish uh, were, were uh, tended to be Democrats, uh, maybe in the early years of Jeffersonian Republic, but at the time of the nativist riots, uh, they were uh, Democrats. Democrats tended to be in the outlying neighborhoods, the city proper tended to be uh, Whigs. And what did it mean to be a Democrat at the time? Well, I guess it's kind of like a Democrat today, working class people. You know, Jack Jackson was very popular with working class people, you know. What happened that caused the Irish to, did they, they ever end up being accepted in the neighborhood or just? 
passage of time? I guess so. I mean, I didn't really look at the much after it, but I mean, it's just a matter of time, I guess, when people, uh, you know, when you become less Irish and more American, just like many ethnic groups. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Kenneth Milano. He's the author of this book, The Philadelphia Nativist Riots, Irish Kensington Erupts. He also wrote this book, Hidden History of Kensington and Fishtown. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.